0: Enjoy the episode. Excited to welcome Ryerson University Women's Basketball Head Coach Carly Clark to the podcast. This past season, Carly Clark took home her first youth sports coach of the year award, doing so on the heels of a dominant showing in the competition on their way to a conference regular season title, a conference tournament title, and a national championship to cap an undefeated season. The accolades and success are just the latest in what has been a triumphant stretch for Clark, as she also served as the Canadian national senior women's team assistant coach at the Tokyo Games this past summer. Clark has been head coach of Ryerson since 2012 and part of Canadian national team programming for the last 10 years. She has won two OUA conference championships and five final eight champ- national championship appearances in nine years. Internationally, she's been head coach for two world championship medals and been part of a number of staffs that have won medals. Carly, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me. Excited
0: to be here. Well, coming off a national championship, there's no better time and uh, congrats than that. And uh, give us some perspective, because what a unique kind of couple of years that you've gone through and all Canadian coaches who've coached college basketball have gone through in terms of a COVID year, losing a whole year, basically. And then, uh, you know, prior to that, you had it rolling. So it must have been interesting to try and get it back going again.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for everyone across the world, it's been a pretty wild couple of years and and certainly in sport. And. In the Canadian sports system in particular and the university system, um, you know, 2020 if you you roll back to March, 2020, uh, we got our national championship tournament in our final eight about five days before things shut down. So, you know, we were fortunate to, to finish our season. It did not finish for us as, as we had hoped and, you know, through injury and whatnot, we, we lost in national quarterfinal and, um you know, and then, and then things shut down and, you know, our team was really in in a spot where we were a veteran and, and looking forward to, to the next season. And, and then, uh, yeah, everything stopped. So, you know, we spent time, you know, t- trying to remain optimistic through the uncertainty, staying connected as a team and, um, you know, ultimately in, in the fall, I guess, or late summer of, of 2020, the, our season was canceled and, uh, you know, certainly in Toronto where we're located, things, you know, were the hardest in, in a lot of ways as, um, you know, through end of 2020 through to 21, uh, we were locked down for like seven straight months with no access to gym or facilities. So, um, you know, to get back at it and have the season we had this season, again, through a lot of ups and downs, it was uh, it was just so so nice to be back out there.
0: And you mentioned uh, to me privately, so I'd love for you to address it, just some of the, the takeaways from that experience that actually, in the end, probably ended up helping you and helping the program. And uh, can you talk about some of those things coming out of that losing a whole season type of experience and then the whole COVID years?
1: Yeah, well, I you know, I think we've heard, again, everyone speak about it in different spaces. Is there there was no book to read on, on how to handle a pandemic, right, in, in any profession. So... Um, you know, trial and error with a lot of different things, but you know, one thing that that was our priority for our program is is just the well being of our people, and uh, you know, really taking some time to check in, make sure what they had, what they needed, and and support them through the different scenarios. You know, the university age athlete is that time of their life is you know whether you're an athlete or not is so transformative, and uh, you know, it's such an important social time in life, and you know, for for all of those things to be ripped away and then to have sport ripped away, I think there's lots of different emotions that were dealt with. So, you know, for us, we, we decided to dive into that well wellbeing, um, dive into the mental performance side of things. And I think we really, really built a strong foundation and, and developed relationships to a deeper level that we were able to carry forward to this season.
0: I, I've mentioned it many times on the podcast, just, uh, you know, the problem with, you know, mental performance, mental skills, all this different stuff is often it's, Separated from the actual team experience, and I know something that you talk about is that it got integrated within your team experience. Can you talk about some of the tangible things that you did to integrate mental performance into your team?
1: Yeah, well, I'm a big believer in in the mental performance side of things. You know, even for myself as as a coach, uh, you know, I have different strategies and and routines that I utilize. And um, you know, for us, there's so much you can do with your off court time to you know, talk about how to build confidence and communication and, and self-talk and, and all of those different things. But, you know, often what gets lost is how to utilize those skills in in the high-pressure moments. So um, we're really fortunate to have an incredible mental performance coach with us this season. Um, and she was at practice two to three times a week, was at games as much as possible. And, you know, one example that in, in a way that we used her was start of, and end of every practice that she was present at, we would incorporate breathing. Um, you know, so simple strategy of just literally practicing our breathing. Um, and then, you know, it was my job as a coach to now integrate, hey, we're making mistakes. We're too sped up in practice. Those types of things are happening. Now's the time to use your breath. Now's the time uh, to use it in response to a mistake or or utilize your self-talk or your keywords. And and making sure there's connection between, you know, those off court, exercises and touch points they would have with, with uh, her as our mental performance coach. And, and I think, you know, me seeing the value and applying it in, in those situations.
0: That's such a great example of uh, integration and application in a practical way. Now, would she be that when she was there, would she cue you as well and cue the players with different types of, uh, you know, whatever pre-designed coping strategies or different things that you have in place?
1: Definitely. Her role was, you know, on the sideline, she's observing, but she also has the freedom to to touch base and, and prompt the reminders. And, you know, one of the important roles I think of a mental performance coach is there's a level of, of confidentiality and safety that the athletes have, um, you know, to have some one-on-one conversations. And, you know, I would not always be privy to like the depth of those one-on-one conversations. So her freedom to be able to, to remind and, And for them to have a safe space to to work through some things that they may not always want to share with a coach is important. So yeah, the role in practice would fluctuate. You know, there might be a moment where she'd come up to me in practice and say, I'm observing this, potentially try and integrate, you know, whatever the breathing, the self-talk, the reminder of our communication, you know, any area really, and, um, you know, or even sometimes observing my stress, stress or uh, the way I was maybe interacting with athletes, that could could help them be better. Uh, so we tried to have the spaces open and and two way communication as much as possible.
0: I love this. And, uh, you know, one of my challenges was always balancing what I knew to be good with psychological safety and creating that, but also balancing that with competitive intensity, which sometimes got the best of me. So I'm wondering uh, anything particular stand out for you in terms of strategies for yourself to be able to balance those things? Because clearly your team competed at a really high level while you still managed the psychological safety and this well being of the athlete. Yeah,
1: I think there's a few things that we'll we emphasize on a daily basis to, to try and create those environments. You know, every, every drill that, that we're u- utilizing in practice, there's a competition element. We're keeping score. Uh, you know, there's a winner or a loser. There's, there's an outcome that we're trying to achieve. Um, and we try and make sure we build that in with great clarity, but it's also connected to our process. So it's not just about winning, but it's the the process of, you know, a defensive shell drill, as an example of like you, if you've got to keep the basketball out of the paint no offensive rebounds no scores no strong hand drives and and that's how you get a stop so there's a lot of process elements to it not just stop or score um so you know those types of things created the competitive environment um you know and and the athletes ultimately become the ones where like no no no, there was paint there there was a strong hand drive and, and they're the ones driving that um so our communication and the way we we build drills and different aspects of our practice. I think build the the competitiveness, but also we try and open that space again for the athletes to recognize and 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 breed, create a freedom to challenge those situations and awareness of those situations. And um, you know, beyond that, we we try and encourage errors in the right way. And you know, we'll celebrate when things go right. Uh, bring awareness to when the errors are made, but not. Not in a way that you know. There's a fear to make the error again. We want to try and correct the error and understand why why we do that as an error and what our you know desired outcome is is to be and and what we're giving up or not giving up as an example.
0: Please dive deeper for us on that celebrating errors because that may seem like a misnomer to a lot of coaches uh, when they think about traditional coaching. So can you go deeper with that?
1: Yeah, I think we just try and be as specific as we can be in. In the feedback, um, you know, our team this year was exceptional defensively. Uh, I think over the last two years, we spent a lot of time on really building some clarity of what we were trying to do defensively. Um, you know, and sometimes later in a possession, our athletes might get into a point of, um, you know, like who should have rotated here? I had the drop, who had the next, you know, they, they get into those types of conversations and, um, you know, we'll, we'll often like back that up and say, okay, like what led to that level of confusion? If we correct this spot, um, you know, then we'll be able, we won't get into that situation later in the possession, Uh, you know, but then at the same time, being able to say like, okay, we just got blown by, but we got blown by to weekend, which is what we want right now. And then now we'll get better at the closeout the next time. So that's like, you know, part of the process. And now let's add to that, that next step.
0: So, so you talked about clarity defensively, but I know clarity in general is a big thing in your program. You talk about the importance of language. Can you explain how you share that language and reach clarity with language within your program?
1: Yeah, I think, again, spend a lot of time and, and reflecting and growing, you know, after every season. And I'm really passionate about that as certainly a person, as coach, is it's my job to make sure that I'm getting better. If that's the expectation of our athletes, uh, you know, I think through different debrief processes, we would notice we would, you know, integrate new ideas or new concepts, you know, and there's so much in there these days that, you you know, like you come across a new idea and say like, oh, I want to try that. Or, you know, I found myself being a little bit too guilty of, of mixing things up too often or using different phrases or, you know, I was calling something one thing and another assistant coach was calling it something else. So we had some direct conversations as a staff to really clarify of this is our language in this situation. And it became my job early on to correct our coaches in the right language. And then we got to the point where the athletes knew like we don't need a long stop, a long uh, uh, explanation. It's like hit the snapback, you know, hit the short roll, whatever it is, and and be able to communicate that quickly and clearly in situations in in practice or in games. And, um, yeah, the the short, concise things that the athletes would would be triggered by were were really helpful.
0: That's great. And uh, at least people think, I mean, most small colleges and certainly most universities in Canada do not have full-time staffs, much like high school coaches or whatnot. So that communication part becomes even more important because they're not full-time there with you often. And uh, that's that's a big thing. Uh, Coach, you mentioned strong hand. Uh, weak hand. So, and, and your defense was tremendous coaches. I encourage you to go watch some of their possessions defensively, super aggressive too, uh, seemed to be part of the philosophy, but can you just focus in a little bit? What were some of the challenges in getting your players to be able to run this type of uh, force week or don't allow strong hand type of defense?
1: Yeah. So I think the, the first biggest challenge for us was just the one-on-one element in that we always emphasized one-on-one, but we weren't necessarily super clear with what exactly what we wanted that plan to be. And you know, we really built the defense by starting and playing a lot of one-on-one and and getting players to understand um angles and positioning and you know where to align your chest and your feet based on the the offensive player and um you know a lot of weekend defenses is is sending everything thing left and you know over time you know we certainly started that way but then over time you know, we were seeing more left-handed players. So we began to challenge ourselves of, okay, how do we deal with the lefties? And, um, you know, ch- again, changing our our body position on the ball one-on-one. And, you know, I think the biggest thing that I've learned is the players will figure it out if you spend some time on it, that they are smart and you can challenge them to close out to to specific personnel and have awareness of who they're closing out to on the floor. I think we underestimate sometimes what, what the players are capable of, Um, you know, and then the second challenge, I think more from a team perspective in in building the weekend defenses is is really about defending in ball screen. And, you know, for us, when it, when we started to dictate things left or right and not just left all the time, um, our coverage has changed a little bit and um, you know, figuring that out with two or three player actions now, instead of one player um, that takes some time to, to communicate and make sure there's clarity in, in what that process should look
0: like. Uh, let's jump into the ball screen stuff, because, again, traditionally with a lot of these type of defenses, if if the ball handler is dribbling to their uh, strong hand, then it would be a hedge or a shock. And if they're going to the baseline, you force them, obviously, to an ice in terms of their weak hand at the baseline. So is that similar or did you just do different things for different personnel?
1: Uh, for us, again, it's evolved over time. So it started... Um, You know, just one side of the floor on the right side of the floor, we were doing a lot of shocking or hard hedging, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, just trying to be as disruptive as possible. Um, In the middle of the floor, it varied a little bit, um, you know, over under, but really just trying to continue to get it going, going weak. And I think that was the biggest piece was getting over it um, and get the ball going in the right direction when you were getting over the screen. So it couldn't come back to the strong hand. And we did do some icing on, on the weak side of the floor as well. Um, but over time, we tried to mix things up a little bit more, um, you know, again, as the players get smarter, um, you know, we did incorporate a little bit more switching, a little bit of trapping, um, you know, and that just became part of our, our package to be able to be a little bit less predictable.
0: I I love that. And adding the switching and trapping in particular, I, I think is really valuable because I found like, especially on the top ball screen, if we're forcing weak, we were almost again, especially in a drop or a less aggressive coverage, a player would inevitably snake it and get back to their dominant hand. And to me, that didn't make sense. Even though we we're forcing it weak initially, we were having to deal with the strong hand. So I imagine going to some of the switching and more aggressive coverages helped eliminate that possibility.
1: Definitely. I think the other thing that, you know, we're seeing more and more of against this type of defense too is a lot of rescreening. Um, you know, which leaves you out of position or, you know, some of your, um, your tags are out of position, single side, double side. And um, you know, we certainly spent some time breaking some of those aspects down as well.
0: And uh, I'm curious. Then you you talked about one on one as as building your defense, and I think that's such an important part nowadays to think about that. If you want to be good covering the ball, start with one on one and build from there. Did you use different types of dynamic starts, different types of constraints, to be able to help shape you know your players' understanding of what you wanted to do out of one on one?
1: Definitely. And, you know, I think we do some version of one-on-one or two-on-two almost every single day in practice. Um, You know, we were a full court pickup, you know, variety of full court pressure teams. So, you know, some days and early in the season, it would, it would start on in the full court scenarios and, and just trying to influence the ball, um, you know, in, in different places in the backcourt. Cause I think that part can sometimes be overlooked. Um, you know, we did do some stationary one-on-one just in terms of like, figuring out feet and body position. Um, and then, you know, a lot of short closeout, you know, we, we try and defend in a way where, you know, we're not in long closeout situations and, and we've got a lot of short closeouts. And, um, so whether that was one-on-one or a little like pen and kick two on two to, to create those situations, we spent a lot of time with that.
0: I think that's so important because I think coaches make a make a mistake sometimes with these closeout drills that it be, it's always such a long closeout and that's unrealistic, right? And if you're playing good defense and mostly the defense that you want to play, most of them are short closeouts. So you're actually creating those situations for your players to work on what they need to transfer to the game.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, again, we we talk about what we're we're willing to give up or trying to give up and and then get to on a short closeout. So um, you know, we'll break down small elements of those those situations and then put them into four and four and five on five scenarios. And, you know, when we do get into those long closeout situations, you know, we try and unpack why that happened, because there's probably a breakdown before that, that, you know, is an area that we need to be better in.
0: Hey coach, I just want to let you know, basketball immersion is proud to partner with just play. I had the chance to spend some time with just play in New Orleans at the Final 4 and I was blown away by the next level simplicity and effectiveness of this all-in-one solution for coaches to prepare, faster and connect with today's players. Just Play provides an elite experience for coaches to better teach, scout and recruit on one platform. Just Play integrates with any video editing solution to streamline how you prepare and engage your players. Sign up for a free demo www dot justplaysolutions.com forward slash ball immersion well you guys were also excellent in the half court offensively uh per synergy and uh you know i watched a bunch of clips uh to get ready for this and, the, and one thing i noticed is obviously a lot of movement prior to generally falling into ball screen or types of get actions uh, but particularly a lot of handoff, pitch, handoff like, actions. So, can you talk about that—the movement prior to the action that you guys incorporated? Because it seemed like again, it just caused havoc for the the defense.
1: Yeah, again, a couple of years ago, and you know, I think even more depth through through COVID, we really evaluated like who our people are and what their strengths were, and um, you know, really tried to build our offense around you know putting our players in positions to to utilize their strengths and. You know, one of the the gifts of our team this year is, you know, we often had five players on the floor that could shoot the three, or or we had a lot of versatility where, you know, we could, you know, based on matchups or based on on different strengths, move people to different spots on the floor. Um, so we we've used a lot of five out actions and and tried to get some players on the move in order to, you know, get some shooters open but also in order to um, create some space for just dynamic play. And, you know, we spent a lot of time on reads of, you know, handoffs, rescreens, slips, ghosts, um, you know, and really experimented with a lot of those things, um, you know, and our players just really got good at, at linking of the, those different concepts together. And, you know, we would mix up how, how we were defending those actions to give ourselves different reads to unpack as well.
0: Well, and the other thing that stood out is the off the ball cutting, um, whether it was cutting on drive, second cuts, or it's cutting on post ups. I mean, your players off the ball especially seem to have a great instinct and seem to be able to take advantage of that uh, quite often. So can you talk a little bit about that, but also how you work on that and develop that? Because I think, again, that's a characteristic of modern offense nowadays.
1: Yeah, I think there was two or three different elements to that for us is, you know, the first one, again, we talked about what the strengths of each individual were. So you know, if our our starting five player was um, one of the best three point shooters in the country, so when she's at that position, you know she has far more freedom. She can pop seventy five percent of the time. But when our other players are, you know, ball screening, then they know that you know their role is to now roll, short roll, long roll, whatever it is, the majority of the time. And then other players can read and react off those situations. Um, you know, we also had some perimeter players or based on our spacing, they'd be on the perimeter and they're not great shooters and, you know, opponents would become aware of that and they're not going to close out all the way to them if they catch the ball. So we, we started to really unpack what they can do in those situations and, and where those cutting opportunities are. So, you know, a lot of personnel based in that space. Um, but then also we talked about, about reading. So if we're setting a, um, you know, we ran a lot of step up this year and again, like a step up with our, our three point shooting threat at the five, she's a pop threat. So the next defender is really looking to stunt hard. You know, we talked about, you know, that, that defender over helping, well, now you're a cutter. Now you're, you know, they turn their head back, cut, you know, pin in flare. And, and again, just working on those reads and the cues that you would see to, you know, to create a space um, put some pressure on a defender and force them into a decision and and obviously cut for yourself to get open, but how that's also creating something for someone else.
0: Can you take us in some of those conversations and give us an idea of how you have those conversations with your players to be able to define for them their strengths? Because clearly that's a huge part of coaching nowadays, especially with some conceptual offense that you throw out there. So let's say you're pick and pop big, uh, 75% of the time, I know that's a general number, but you want her to pop. How do you take us into that conversation about how you get her to buy into that?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, a lot of them are happening amongst the whole team and, you know, live play situations or even, like, I guess between possessions, we'll stop it and say, like, hey, what did you see? And, you know, this is where the D is. We'll talk about it. This is how you can get an open shot for you. This is how, you know, when our wing player, when you cut, you're creating this open shot for this person. And, you know, one of the things that was most special about our team this year was um, just the level of selflessness. Um, You know, there was a level of connection about what we were trying to do and um, you know, everyone was committed to the same goal and um, you know, we would really try and celebrate again, you know, that cut created her open shot, like great job. That's what we need more of and, and recognize those little things, um, you know, that, you know, the, the, the shot going in is the easy thing to recognize, but like, how did we get that open shot? Um, so reemphasizing amongst the whole team, you know, you're great at this, keep doing this. And, you know, I think that that creates some validation and some confidence when they do things right. And then it gives opportunities to, you know, unpack what other decisions may have been available when, when there, there are other decisions out there.
0: It's great stuff. It's awesome to hear. And uh, particularly this focus on personnel and understanding, you know, their value to their teammates into the offense. And uh, another example would be at a transition where you seem to have a lot of triggers. Uh, and let's say an example of uh, one of your players, I could tell, is almost always a point guard push as deep as possible type of player whereas another player handling the ball is probably more of an angle to a handoff to initiate the action type of player. So take us in that process a little bit of your triggers on offense, especially at a transition.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've spent some time on that in a couple of different ways. Um, you know, we we spent some time with, with two-sided actions early in the year. And again, knowing some of our shooting threats, um, we really wanted to space the floor and put pressure on defense, especially like we weren't the biggest team. So, you know, if transition defenses are recovering to the paint, how do we, how do we punish that um, with a lot of spacing? And then to your point, giving room for those, those guards to push and attack the paint and then make decisions where it was one of their strengths. Um, So, you know, simply we would just do a lot of general spacing, talk about that and, and give them freedom to play out of advantage drills. You know, we spend um, 15 minutes, every practice of, whether it's like three on three continuous or, um, you know, different advantage situations in transition and and just exploring what we can find out there. You know, we'll say, OK, today, let's hunt handoffs, let's hunt drag screens or, um, you know, look for the trailer, get to the second side. And, you know, sometimes it's based on the opponent and what we might anticipate or, or just throwing different ideas out there for the players to experiment with and, and build on those throughout the course of the year.
0: Well, you already referenced uh, figure it out, and that's a part of this constraints-led approach where you give them a constraint and then they have to figure it out. Are there any types of musts or non-negotiables within your offense or your defense for for your players uh, that are, are things that, again, they must adhere to?
1: Offensively, there, there truly is a lot of freedom. I think, you know, we talk about spacing constantly. Um, you know, I think every every possession, whether it's related to the cutting or, you know, like getting to the spots we want to get on the floor. So we have good spacing to make decisions. Um, you know, it's not always black and white, but that's a concept that, you know, we always want them thinking about and, you know, we're trying to stay out of what I'll call it the gray zone and, and getting caught, you know, in between spaces. Um, and then defensively, like the one-on-one pieces is massive for, for us. And, um, you know, it may sound really general, but uh, our effort is is something that, that is just non-negotiable for us, is that we we don't put on plays, we play through possessions. Um, you know, we talk about playing the whistle and not the horn all the time. And um, just some of those little things effort-wise and, um, you know, along that same line is, is just mistake response and understanding that, um, you know, you're going to make a mistake, but we try not to compound mistakes. And I think that's what leads to runs in, in, in our sport is that, you know, if you make a mistake and then you shut down for next possession or two, that goes from a, a two-point run to a six-point run. And, uh, you know, so less technical tactical in, in some of those hard non-negotiables, but um, those are messages that, that we get to our team all the time.
0: Right. And those are so important. And mis- mistake response. So co- connect that a little bit to us uh, with, you know, the integration of a sports psychologist, our mental skills coach, and then the individual performance plan of a player is that these things are very individual to players, aren't they, in terms of how they respond to mistakes. So can you take us in that, maybe give us two examples of two different players and how they respond and need to cope differently with mistakes?
1: Yeah, I think that's such a great one and such an important one that, you know I think we've grown a lot in, in, in this year, in particular, to your point with the mental performance coaches, I think just awareness of what athletes need. And, um, you know, we've got one athlete who, uh, can be really low confidence and she's not a great shooter. So if she mixes an outside shot or two, because she's left open that can lead to a head hanging or, you know, a lot of self doubt, um, you know, and maybe she doesn't play with the same effort defensively. So, that might just be a, a touch point of, you know, a pat on the back of like, that's the right shot. That's the one we want you to shoot. This is what else you can do in this situation. Um, whereas another athlete, you know, might respond more with a level of frustration. And, you know, that leads to extra effort at the other end and, you know, a, a, a proneness to shoot a gap or, you know, reach in and foul and attempt to make up for their error. Um, you know, so that might indicate like, use your breathing. Uh, keep your composure. You know, again, using utilizing some keywords that we might have to to get the the mental mindset reset as quickly as possible.
0: It's very cool to hear that. And uh, another thing that uh, you referenced for me, just as we were getting ready for this, was your approach in combining both game prep and team development and practice. And I think that's such a cool concept too to be able to talk about and share with us. So, can you outline that a little bit for us?
1: Yeah, I think some of that goes back to. Um, you know, even two seasons ago, when we were reevaluating some of what we were doing, technically and tactically, um, you know, one of the scans that we did was, okay, we know our team is pretty good, and you know, we're on the cusp of you know competing. We've been at those national championships. What do we need to do to take ourselves over the top? And I think we looked at you know three or the four, three or four of the top anticipated teams in the country that season. They said, who do they have? What are their strengths? What are we going to need to do to beat them? And our team didn't know that we did that, but our staff did that. And that, you know, helped to build our our technical and tactical plan for for that season. And that's something that, you know, we've certainly carried forward this past year as well. Um, You know, so, you know, obviously starting more broadly, but one example of that is, you know, our team was a bit smaller than some of the other top teams in the country. So how are we going to handle when the ball goes into the post? Um, You know, so we had some tactics that we just started. Uh, practicing at the beginning of the year, and two or three different things that we knew we were going to do to try and handle post play, as an example. Um, and then when we get into, you know, finding those opponents or those opponents are approaching, now we decide what we're going to use. What's our plan A? What's our plan B? Um, you know, so that again, that's one example. But also in relation to the the practice planning, game planning process, in, in some other ways, is is looking how we're going to be defended. Um, you know, for example, we saw a variety of different ball screen defenses this season. So, um, you know, building in those small sided games where today we're switching only we're switching and, you know, we're, we're blitzing, we're, you know, mixing up those different coverages and working on those reads. And, and oftentimes we wouldn't even tell our team early on that it was a, a a plan or, you know, preparation for an opponent. It was just working on a variety of things. And. Um, through that we were able to build in different wrinkles and different reads and then as you get closer to your game to be able to to say okay we anticipate the defense is going to do this these are some of the reads we want to look for and and get more specific as as the game will get closer
0: It's awesome because it speaks to uh, the the value that you put into defensive decision-making and building defensive decision-making. I think we often think of defense too much as absolutes rather than decision-making. But as you know, the best defenses have to be adaptable. So uh, these small sided games, these disadvantaged games for the defense, what are some other ways you incorporated defensive decision-making? You mentioned the constraints as well, just having two different constraints to be able to go to. Uh, Anything else?
1: Yeah. I think one of the big things that we do is just like recognizing who you're in an action with. Um, you know, so we had a lot of similar size players Our two, three, four, and even sometimes our five would be, be all switchable. Um, you know, so we might just say we're switching two through five, you know, but any action with the one that's not a switch. So we're in our base coverage and, and then we'll just, um, you know, again, two on two, three on three different situations. And, and the players have to recognize and communicate in live play. Uh, this one's a switch. This one's not a switch. And, you know, again, our team was super intelligent this season in particular. So now we're able to get into the specifics. Are we switching under? Are we switching over? You know, sometimes we were able to incorporate um, some scram switching to get out of some matchups. And, um, again, I think just challenging and introducing some of these concepts. And, and again, they, they can figure it out if, if you give them some freedom to do it.
0: Well, and they have to figure it out to win a national championship. There's no doubt <laughs> they're not all scripted situations, as we know. And uh, part of the value of practicing small sided games, constraint approach, offense versus defense, whatever you want to call it, is that it, it gives you this opportunity to be able to, I believe, game plan more effector- effectively, right? Like you can integrate more of the wrinkles or adjustments for opponents because they're used to being able to adapt and adjust within your practices.
1: Totally. And I think, you know, certainly down the stretch of our season this year, that that was a big piece. And a lot of our offense was built around, um, you know, specific spacing. Like a lot of our, our actions were set up with similar spacing, a couple different like base alignments I'll say. And um, as the season went on, we were able to just add one or two little wrinkles that were out of actions that we had been doing all year. So they were easy ads and um, just enough to, I think, like throw the opponent off that you know, would have scouted something specifically, um, you know, the the freedom to play and make plays I think is so critical. Um, you know, at every level, the best teams are taking things away, um, but also at the same time to have, you know, something that you can get to where you get the ball to your best player's hands to make a decision. Um, you know, there's such a balance between those two things and, you um, you know, through our buildup, we were able to to get to some of those places and our, our players really understood we're running this for so-and-so on the left wing because her strength is, you know, driving baseline on the left wing. And uh, they understood how those things kind of set up and all linked together.
0: Hey coach, I wanted to take a moment to tell you about a product I love and have used with my teams and now with my daughters in our backyard, Dr. Dish. Use promo code IMMERSION for exclusive savings on any of the machines. Dr. Dish Basketball is accelerating player performance with the most innovative game-like training solution available, allowing coaches and players to get better faster than ever before. By providing the most usable and advanced shooting machines, on-demand workouts, multiplayer stat tracking, and instant analytics, Dr. Dish Basketball has become the preferred source for basketball training with progressive coaches and players. A reminder, use promo code Immersion for exclusive savings on any of the machines. And uh, you you mentioned uh, culture and the importance of that. One of the things that you reference as well is team identity. And uh, I'm curious, first of all, if you could share what your team identity was for this season, and then we can dive a little bit more into it.
1: Yeah, I think broadly, um, you know, the first part of it was just our goal is to be the best at getting better. And that, that is what we talked about every single day um, of how to, you know, find a way to get a little bit better every day. And, um, you know, we are really fortunate to have great depth on our team this year. And and that meant no matter what two teams we had made up in practice, that they were competing and challenging each other. And, um, you know, certainly celebrating uh, that competition level was a huge part of our identity. Uh, the The second piece was you know, this season in particular coming out of everything that we came out of our identity was, was having fun. Uh, you know, it's again, sounds simple, but we talked about joy and gratitude constantly. You know, we had a few start stops due to, um, you know, the the virus peaking again. And, you know, we had, it was tough waiting it out to get back to it. Um, so we just had, again, joy and gratitude of of having the opportunity and, I think, really appreciating each other and the team that we had. So you know those were certainly massive pieces. and um, you know, there was then a process focus and a relentlessness that that we just talked about nonstop and you know, relentless and getting better um, in managing those mistake responses and and playing every single possession. and um, you know, a bit of a joke amongst our team right now, but truly, one of my favorite moments is there's one minute left in the national final and and we were up by by 20 at that point. And, you know, our, one of our best players is on the floor and, and you can see her looking around and saying like one more stop, one more stop. So, you know, at that, that point you probably could have started to relax a little bit, but, but that was not the mindset. So, um, you know, for me, that was one of the most rewarding moments to see, you know, that, that process live through to the very end.
0: It's amazing those type of moments bring you so much pride as a coach, don't you, because you know that they have all bought in together, as you said, to that selflessness. Absolutely. So when you form this team identity coach, is that something you're doing uh, co-creating it with your players, or is this something that you're coming in understanding your team, and then this is what it is?
1: Yeah, I think it's varied a little bit for me over the years. Um, you know, I think it depends a bit on where you know what the status of your team is for us this season our team was very veteran so you know two se- two seasons ago in in 2019 20 we spent some time together as a team of of really um you know putting some words and some clear actions together of of what that identity was and um so much of our team carried forward from from that season 2 years ago that we we didn't feel we needed to spend the same amount of time you know off court unpacking it and we were able to carry some of it forward and and we had real strong leadership to to build it on the floor and what it looked like um you know and we talked about those joy and gratitude and relentlessness but it also related to you know it could then filter down to to what that looked like on the floor and and the players could communicate that you know like diving on the floor for the loose ball was relentless and we would use our language in those situations and um you know, celebrating the pass-pass situation and making sure we highlighted that, you know, and, and our team would be celebrating that before the shot was made or missed because it was, it was the right play. Um, so, again, I think, you know, how, how much time you spend unpacking those things is, is a bit on where your team is and understanding what that identity should look like in, in live play
0: coach i i can't have you on the podcast and not go back to a little bit of your origin story because again we know where you are now you're at the top of the mountain obviously incredible success internationally at ryerson but your first university job was a huge struggle uh you were at a place that was under resourced you know wasn't really there to compete per se and not a knock on them that's just how it goes at some places but it was a real struggle wasn't it and uh i want to just Kind of have you share a little bit part of that process of working your way through that and uh you know obviously it ended in a great story but uh you know that's part of your journey isn't it
1: no question um you know i i look back on those years and and absolutely recognize how formative they were for me as a coach um you know when when i started i was first hired as a head coach when i was 26 years old and um now across our league it's not common in the ncaa but in in you or it is common in the ncaa it's only becoming more common in new sports to have full-time assistant coaches when i was coming up that opportunity did not, did not exist so if you yeah, wanted i never
0: had one in my whole career <laughs>
1: exactly so so i had the opportunity to get my first head coaching position at at 26 at the university of prince edward island and and that program was in a complete rebuild and i think that's why they took a chance on on a young head coach. And um, I'll never forget my university coach telling me, you don't know how much you don't know um, until you're, until you're in it. And I certainly lived that. Um, and, you know, as, as I went through it, I think I didn't always know it at the time, how much I was learning, but our, our team for, for the first two seasons, we did not win a regular season game. We went 0 and 20 and 0 and 20. And uh, you know, we did have some success recruiting our second year, uh my second year there, uh, we had a very young team with some promising talent, uh, but we still didn't win a, a regular season game. And I think when you're going through that um and you're a competitor, it's really, really hard. And there was definitely some hard moments. Um, but as a coach, you have to find wins. And I think that, you know, I've always been a believer in the process, but but going through those leaner years, um, really drove my focus on the process because that's the only way we could stick to it is recognizing, you know, the wins that we were having that weren't necessarily showing up on the scoreboard every single day. Um, so, you know, I think that was critical in, in building my coaching philosophy as a young coach and, and carrying that forward to to the opportunity at Ryerson to, to continue building that. And I think that lives through in, in how we approach um, our team now.
0: I had a great uh, coaching mentor when I was really young before I got my first uh, university job. And they told me that uh, for me to really grow as a coach, I'd have to go through losing to to really experience what coaching is about. And uh, my first university job was very similar to what you went through. And uh, those struggles really do obviously make you a better coach. And it also gives you a little bit of freedom, doesn't it? To be able to try some things that maybe you otherwise wouldn't because you have to throw stuff at the wall to see what sticks.
1: No question. I think the experimentation that you, you get in those situations is is also really important. I think we see that with Nick Norse talks about that all the time through through his journey in, in different countries and whatnot. And um, you know, you figure out what works in different situations and and that's part of the fun of it all too, right?
0: It, absolutely. It was it was it's certainly somewhat fun to have no pressure, knowing that you probably can't win but also that you can try anything and then see and (laughs) very unique. I know very different than what you're experiencing now. Right.
1: Totally. And uh, I think once you get a a taste of the winning, that, that that's a driving force moving forward. And, um, but again, to integrate all of those different elements into, you know, building a successful program, I, I'm just a full believer in, in that. And again, the process and the experimentation and, um, You know, not allowing yourself to get stagnant either,
0: right? Because that is the challenge of winning—is that it's working, so we don't need to change anything. And uh, you've referenced that, but that was another advantage of the COVID shutdowns for you, no doubt, is that you got a chance to do some things otherwise that you wouldn't be able to do, which is immerse yourself in learning, right?
1: Absolutely. I mean, the amount of of opportunities that were out there—I mean, not live, but you know, through this forum and and whatnot—to connect with different coaches around the world. Again, there was almost too much information out there and to actually spend the time then paring it down and, and I think figure out what fits best for your team and your program is is an important part of that process too.
0: How has coaching internationally shaped you? because uh, again, you've had some tremendous experiences both as a head coach and as an assistant coach internationally.
1: I think, you know, I've just been so fortunate um to to be exposed to, you know, basketball worldwide to be exposed to different styles, different coaches, and every type of learning opportunity available. Um, So I just feel feel so fortunate for that. Um, But the uniqueness of the different styles around the world has been something that, you know, has really challenged me, you know, certainly in a world championship tournament, um, to go from playing Russia in a world championship semifinal to Japan in a world championship bronze medal game, those styles are immensely different. And um, you know, challenges your adaptability and and your decision making. And, um, you know, when you're going to a world championship, you know, you've got seven games in 11 days of of all those different styles. So, um, you know, as a staff to be able to go, okay, we've got three weeks to, to figure out how to prepare for all of these things, what's going to work. Um, you know, I think I'm giving some specific examples of the type of adaptability, efficiency that you have to have in your training and, and in your planning in order to, to build a successful um, you know, situation in those tournaments. And, um, you know, to have two different environments to, to bring things back and forth between and experiment with different things, uh, again, is, you know, I think there's no better better place to learn and grow.
0: It's kind of alluring too. Like you watch a team like Japan play on the women's side that and you go, man, I'd love to have my team play that way. But it puts it in perspective how, again, how unique their situation and their players and their culture and reference personnel so much throughout this. And it's like, as much as I want my team to play that way, I probably don't have a team that can play that way. And that's challenging, isn't it? Somewhat
1: totally it totally is we actually took a couple pieces from japan but it wasn't we're not running japan style at our university where you know this is an element that fits with this personnel and um yeah again it just challenges your thinking and um you know forces you to think outside the box a little bit too
0: carly man this is so many wonderful things i'm so grateful finally we've had this chat we've we've got to know each other a little bit separate from this but uh you know, the thing that stands out for me is is the build of what you've done at Ryerson. And I think there's a lot of lessons to take away from that because, again, tremendous support. You got there at the same time when the university was ready to do it, but by and large, you still had to put all these pieces in place progressively to get to the top. This wasn't an overnight thing. So you can talk about some of the things to coaches about just some of the faith process that you went through as you're building this.
1: Yeah, I think the the first thing that the reason I was drawn to... To ryerson now toronto metropolitan university um you know it was there was a vision for excellence and the university was making a shift in in their value for athletics and i just felt like i aligned with the excellence that they were striving for and and that was really attractive to me so um to know that we had the support from the university to to build a program the right way um you know i think that was an incredibly important foundational piece and and then i think that the biggest thing for me was just around surrounding myself with, with the right people from our coaching staff to, you know, the types of players who are incredible people that I get to work with every day. I think, um, you know, over the 10 years that I've been at, been at Ryerson, uh, we've just had incredible people that have challenged me to grow that have brought their best and, and, you know, contributed to a vision and, um, put the work in. So, I think those two pieces, the, you know, the environment for excellence with the right people, you can, you can find a lot of success.
0: And you did. <laughs> and you did. Congratulations, Coates, on another amazing year. And thanks for sharing the game with us.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to the basketball podcast. Learn more from some of the best coaches in the world at immersionvideos.com. At immersionvideos.com, our unwavering commitment to you is to offer the tools necessary for you to be an outstanding coach who values learning and seeks to evolve. If you're a better coach now than you were yesterday, we've done our job, and so have you. The goal is to focus on authentic sharing of resources you can use to help your players and teams improve. Drills, tactics, techniques, philosophies, practice design, and so much more will be shared from numerous coaches including Nate Oates, Doug Novak, Aaron Fern, Dave Smart, and so many more to come. Go to immersionvideos.com now to check out all the products and follow at Immersion Videos on Twitter to keep up to date. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the Basketball Podcast and this week's guest a shout-out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com slash newsletter.